Hello, and welcome to the Kidney Cast. I'm Laura Morris. And I'm Ari Deckard. And this is our podcast where I interview Ari about his experiences with Alport syndrome, his three kidney transplants, and all of his other medical and health experiences. Yeah. So last week, Ari, we talked about moving to New York City. We did. And our adventure of arriving with the clothes on our back <laughs> and very little money and a dream of law school and at-home dialysis. <laughs> right. So I think probably we should pick up after that transitional moving time in New York. Okay. And last episode, we talked a little bit about meeting your at-home dialysis nurse who was going to mm-hmm. coordinate for you. Yes. But you had a whole new medical team in New York. Yeah, that was that was strange because I was working to establish care uh, as a dialysis patient, but also get listed in New York with UNOS uh, for a transplant as soon as possible. Was that difficult? You know, it wasn't. I honestly don't remember the process that much, which means it was probably pretty easy. What I do remember is I got set up with the home dialysis people, and then through that office, and in fact at the exact same location, I gained a care nephrologist. And in the transplant dialysis world of nephrology, there's usually two basic kinds of nephrologists. One is care, and that's a person that follows you if you're on dialysis, if you're maybe getting ready for dialysis, if perhaps you just have slightly low kidney function or all those sorts of things. That's the kind of person you see if your regular doctor says, hey, we're seeing some weird kidney numbers. Maybe you should go see a nephrologist. You see that person. And so I got this doctor who was... And just for the audience, what's the other kind of nephrologist? Yeah, so the other kind of nephrologist is a transplant nephrologist. So I needed both of those. I've had both of those, obviously, in the past. And I'll talk about transplant nephrologists in a little bit. But I was assigned to the care of care nephrologist, a dialysis nephrologist, like I said, through this same office. I saw him at that same office. It was really convenient. I could check in with my nursing team for home dialysis at exactly the same time as I had appointments with him just about how everything else was going. And uh, one of the cool things was this was the youngest doctor that I'd had. I want to say he was about my age. He might have been a few years older than me. I think that's about true. And that marked kind of a real... I don't know, transition point in my medical care. I think that's true with most people that when you start out, whether you're healthy or not, your doctors are these old people, or even if it's not an old person, it's somebody who's older than you. And at a certain point, you start having a doctor who's about your age, and then you transition to the third stage where you're older than your doctor. And like I said, he was about my age, and that was nice It took a little getting used to, but it it was nice. Like, oh, okay, here's somebody who has maybe more of the same cultural references that I do. So if I happen to make a joke, he might get where I'm coming from, or he might make a joke uh, that I would understand, which obviously isn't vital, you know, in your medical care, but is nice (laughs) It's uh, to have that kind of connection and things. So, And also... As a patient, you're somebody who gets to know your doctor and have an re- ongoing relationship with them a lot more than the average person. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's totally true. So we established that. I saw 
that doctor pretty regularly and those nurses pretty regularly visiting the office. I was there to get things like injectables and certain other minor supplies that were important but could not be shipped to me uh, for various reasons like injectables of uh, one of my medications that I took on dialysis that kept my red blood cell count up and normal so I wasn't anemic all the time. So uh, I saw him and then I also said, you know, obviously I want to be listed on the transplant list. And he said, yes, of course, let's get you going with that. Let's do that here at Columbia. I said, fantastic. And he had a friend. For some reason, what sticks to my head is that they like barbecued together, but their kids knew each other. They hung out outside of work who was in the transplant nephrology department. And honestly, it didn't really matter if he had a friend or not. He was going to refer me over there, and that team was going to sort of take me on as somebody who was waiting on the list. So we went over there, made an appointment, and again, this was you know a guy his age, so like maybe five years older than me, basically my age. And I had, and we had, a series of appointments with all of those people. And it was kind of interesting to go through that process at, I guess at that point, that's my third hospital doing that, but seeing how a totally different team does things, it was different. And it was also familiar because this was, you know, it was going to be my third transplant. And they knew that they'd seen my medical history. And so this kind of weird phenomenon happened where I had had the most intense like training and informational sessions and things like that in like 1995, 1996. And here it was 2008, 12 years later, and things had changed. Um, and I didn't quite know what had changed and their standard of care was just a little different than how they did things at other hospitals. And they came in going, okay, this is your third transplant. So, you know, there's some stuff for diet and there's some stuff for meds and there's some stuff for this thing and that thing. But you know, you've been through this before and they were not trying to be casual about it, but they were glossing over things just going, well, you know this and we don't want to condescend to you. And I was like, no, actually, please go ahead. <laughs> really? I, I want to know everything, how you do it, because maybe some standards have changed. Maybe there's some things that I don't know or don't remember. It's been a while and my memory gets funky for reasons we've discussed, so please help me. So, you know, they did, and that was really nice. It was a number of appointments, and there were a couple of day-long-ish visits to the department, which is, in my experience, pretty standard. You know, you go in and you say, all right, now I am meeting with this doctor, now I'm meeting with that doctor, now I'm sitting down with a social worker, now I'm sitting down with a dietitian, now I'm sitting down with whoever this is. Now they're taking my blood. Oh, by the way, we forgot we needed a urine sample. Um, it's like an eight to three or four or five day. And you came with me and we did that whole thing and went back and forth and signed a bunch of papers and got insurance pre-approvals and um, all of those things that we had to do. And one of the things that was interesting is... You've been set up with a care nephrologist, and now we're going to visit all these transplant doctors. Mm -hmm. So you're visiting this team of people who may be your doctors at some undefined point in the right. future, you know, when your number comes up for a transplant. Yeah. And what I thought was interesting about, I guess, the attitude at the Columbia Hospital mm -hmm. was that everyone talked to us like, this is a thing that's going to happen. Oh, yeah. 
and a really different attitude. We are going to get you a kidney. You're going to have a transplant. You're going to be with us someday. Yeah. And I would say that's very different from our other experiences where it felt like a lot of the emphasis was on, well, if you get a call, mm-hmm. if you get a transplant, you know, it's going to take a really long time. It'll be years and years. Right. And their attitude was like, well, you might meet us tomorrow. Yeah, exactly. And that there's a lot of reasons for that, uh, one of which I'll get into shortly. But the other reason was that, you know, we mentioned this uh, an episode or two or three ago that Columbia, coincidentally, is one of the places that had started doing all of those kind of amazing swap transplants. And so they assumed, like, we transplant a lot of people, and more and more people were finding ways to transplant them that would not have been able to do so as quickly as before. That was really important to them. That was a big initiative that they were taking. And so, yes, there's a list. Yes, we're putting you on the list. But we'll find a way to do this quickly. And we did not really let ourselves believe that. Oh, yeah. It seemed like, well, that's cute, guys. But listen, (laughs) we know how this goes. Uh, And so they had this initiative with the swaps that they were doing more and more of. and And I'll just break in a second in case anybody doesn't remember what a swap transplant is. Right. So that's a swap or a chain or a web, all kind of a similar idea. If you have a loved one who wants to donate a kidney to you who's not a match to you, yeah, that person can essentially donate by proxy. So they, person A will actually donate a kidney to the relative of person B. Yeah. And the relative of person B, maybe they have a match for person A's relative, so it's just a straight swap. Way more often, it's a pretty elaborate chain of six or seven people. Mm-hmm sharing organs across a network so they can kind of complete a loop so that everybody gets their organ. Yes, it's very involved and requires a great deal of scheduling, as one might imagine. Tons of moving parts and lots of stuff that they're just, they've figured out and are able to do pretty well. So they were sort of assuming, I think, just because you were there, that, well, we'll try to include you in one of these soon. Um, And we said, well, sure, but, you know, Lara's starting law school, so it's going to be a few years before that's an option for us, but it was a thing that was on the table. The other thing that was on the table that we discussed at length with several doctors was this idea that I could be on sort of a expanded list. I don't remember how they described it, but basically I signed some papers, I consented, to be considered for what's called a high-risk kidney. And what that means is sometimes somebody comes in uh, and they they die in the ER or something, and they're an organ donor, but either the cause of their death or just also <laughs> they, they, are, um, they have been involved in maybe some high-risk behaviors like IV drug use, or they perhaps have certain kinds of conditions that might be bloodborne that um, usually preclude them from transplant. And so that's a high-risk organ because some of those things can be transmitted to the recipient if, if that organ is, is donated. And, and I, I should say that... so. IV drug use is a risk because sometimes people share needles, and so they maybe have some kind of bloodborne illness like hepatitis that um, they might not know that they have. 
and or might not show up initially in a first test when an organ is taken for donation. And so that's obviously higher risk than the standard donation where they say, like, we've tested everything, there's nothing wrong, we know that, and there's no ri extra special scary risk factors, this is an organ that is regularly approved. This was, a, I think, a sort of experimental or recently approved path that, at the time, that you had to specifically consent to. And I'm pretty sure you still have to specifically consent, say, I am willing to receive something from an expanded pool. Um, this was recommended to us because I have a rare blood type, because New York is so populous, that our wait time was much more likely to be something like, I want to say, seven years without signing, and that they had been finding that wait time was reduced to between one and three if you were willing to accept a high-risk kidney. And they made a point of saying that the outcomes they had seen were actually pretty good because they do lots of extra testing when they use a, a, an organ like that to make sure that, you know, you get a good result, that if, heaven forbid, you get uh, hepatitis from your your donated organ that then, all right, we're going to treat that aggressively and take care of you also. Right. And I want to say, we're saying high risk because that's what it's called. But I don't want to paint a picture that these organs are super scary. Right. Because any human adult behavior comes with some <laughs> degree of risk. Yeah. The things you do, you just, you make an analysis, you decide, is this worth the payoff for me? Right. And it's not like this is the Wild West of organ donation mm -hmm. that you were entering into there are lots of things that might prevent a person from giving blood because blood banks are worried about bloodborne illness you know there's if you yeah. look at like the red cross rules and this is a similar idea because you're getting an organ you're going to have some of that person's blood and tissue in your body yeah and the rules are necessarily very very careful they err on the side of being more restrictive mm -hmm. to keep people safe and that's true in this case, too. So high risk is high risk within very careful, very restrictive rules. Yeah, yeah. And they do a lot of testing. <laughs> they really do. They told me at the time that there would be, um, if I received one of these kidneys, that there would be um, a bunch of extra batteries of tests that they would follow up specifically about these kinds of things, the kinds of things that you know, one would be worried about um, really, really carefully and closely multiple times to make sure that it hadn't happened. I, I think that, to your point, a better description might be higher risk as opposed yeah. to high risk, because these are not evil Knievel organs. You know, they're not like going wee and doing crazy things. They're just, they're coming from a source that might be um, less... Uh, less safe, I guess, than the standard, very, very, very restricted sources that are usually or have in the past been more been approved. Right. And another thing I want to make really clear, because this is also an issue with restrictions on who can give blood, is that sometimes the rules that block people can serve to demonize or stigmatize mm -hmm. people. And this, there's a history of that with who's allowed to donate blood. Yes. That historically... Men who have sex with men or have in the past have been restricted, and that is not a good rule. Right. And it's about panic and yeah. stigmatization. And I think that some of the articles I've read online as kind of weird hypotheticals, and it's always weird to 
read people speculating about a hypothetical that is something that you have done in your life. But wow, would you ever take a high-risk organ? And I think that it stigmatizes the donor, who is a real person, even if they're deceased. Yeah. And this is somebody who's signed up to give their organs, who's doing a good thing. Mm -hmm. And whose family is doing a good thing. Right. And I really don't ever want to participate in that. Yeah. And like I said, adult humans do lots of things that are high risk <laughs> or low risk and evaluate and decide for themselves what's worth it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, astute listeners might see where that's going. But so I also met this doctor who was a transplant nephrologist who, you know, has all the same kind of training as a care nephrologist, but whose job is to specifically follow post and immediate pre-transplant patients, that his area of expertise within this already narrow area of expertise is in immunosuppression and specific issues related to transplants. So I met that doctor, and then this was also unusual. It had never happened before in this way, that as part of all of these initial conferences, just to list me and say, someday you will come have a transplant with us. I met one of the transplant surgeons. Yeah, we went and met him together. Yeah. And that was kind of neat because it usually the transplant surgeon is sort of the, like all surgeons, you know, the hot shot who comes in at the moment at hand, does the stuff, the surgery, and looks at your incision you know, a couple weeks and then a month later and sees you in the hospital, make sure you're recovering from the surgery and then goes, peace out, I'm off to do another surgery. And right. They are definitely the special guest star. Yeah. Yeah. Un unequivocally. And that they don't have anything to do with your care. They're not part of a team. Or at least that's the impression you get. They obviously are. They consult with the other doctors. You know, they're, they're doctors. And in this case, it was really clear that this was a team. This is a group of people who worked together and who collaborated. Not to say again that my previous teams had not collaborated, but that was much more transparent to me as a patient. And in a certain way, it was interesting because I was essentially assigned a surgeon, perhaps years in advance, assuming he was available, but that he was going to be the surgeon who did my surgery. So I met that doctor too. And that was really cool. He was really cool. And that was a weird appointment yeah. because we're consulting a surgeon for a surgery an indefinite period of time away. Right. It's not scheduled. It's a really hypothetical one at that point. Right. I was thinking, will I even remember your face or anything we've talked about if and when the kidney comes? Mm -hmm. He was great. He had that a little bit of that surgeon hotshot cockiness. <laughs> a little. But in that way that I really liked, uh -huh. it wasn't obnoxious. It was just born from extreme competence. Yeah. And I remember because I was thinking in the back of my head about you and your uncle Michael's experience at OHSU where Michael had been told, you'll be the second person ever to right, right, have right. this type of surgery. And so I just, one of the, he said any questions. And one of the questions I asked was, how many of these transplant surgeries have you done? Mm -hmm. And he kind of, he tilted his head a little bit and was kind of doing that. I'm trying to do math in my head based on, you know, yeah. how many a month do I do and yeah. times this long. And then he just kind of gave up and went hundreds. Yeah. Yeah. Because, you know, it's a really big center. They they do a lot of patients all the time. <laughs> you know, whenever I go to that waiting room, it's a very large waiting room. And I've been to fairly large waiting rooms in transplant 
departments before, but it is always packed. Doesn't mm-hmm. matter what yeah. time of day, what time of year, what part of the week. It doesn't matter. It's always packed. Young, old, men, women. It doesn't matter. Just tons and tons and tons of people. They just they're moving people in and out constantly. So the other thing about <laughs> this doctor, this surgeon, is that um, he was also fairly young. Again, around my age, a little bit older, and he he did a physical exam. I had several physical exams that day, but he specifically was going to make some notes in my chart that he would then look at whenever this came up, just to remind himself, like, I've looked at this body that I'm going to operate on. What did I see? Where might I need to go? Are there any little things? And he looked at all of my scars at that point. I had a chevron, a large chevron on my lower abdomen. Right. One scar, several scars on each side for putting in and taking out kidneys. Yeah, and what had typically happened is that they had basically used the same incision, you know, just gone in the same place because that's where you go in and it's easier to follow an incision line and things like that. And he looked at it and was kind of like, oh, who did this one? And he wasn't (laughs) that mean, but he was kind of like, huh. And I I told him and he's, you know, he had heard of this doctor because he's, like I said, he was a big name guy. And then he was kind of like, well, he's very old school. And I was super amused because coming from the West Coast, everybody spoke of him in these very glowing terms. And, you know, he had worked very hard in the early years of of kidney transplantation and been this pioneer and was head of a department for a reason that he had been this large figure and gave talks all over. But that this guy, having done the many, many he had done, and he has done many, many since, at that point was like, eh, I can do better. Yeah, surgeon trash talk. Yeah, it was very much that. Like, well, I don't know about this this wacky incision you've got. But, that, and weirdly, that was comforting. That, like, it didn't seem as if he was putting on a show or, like, he was full of himself. Right, it was just, this is his job, he's great at it. Yeah. And his demeanor, you know, you think about organ transplantation, yeah. It's this gigantic, dramatic, huge thing in your life. And, you know, from my perspective, okay, the person I love is going to be drugged and put under and they're going to cut into him and right. remove things and put things in there. And for this guy, it was very clearly, this is just, this is my punch o'clock job. I'm great at it. <laughs> it's not a big deal. I am not freaked out. Right. Well, and, and he he loves it. He really likes it and is good at it. Yeah. I think it's clear. We got a really good impression from that whole visit it it was it was nice and we kind of thought okay well whenever this happens in seven years or maybe three because we signed up for the high-risk kidney pool you know we feel like we're in really good hands and that was really positive so i had established care with my care nephrologist who i went and saw regularly i had established future care with a transplant nephrologist, my care nephrologist friend, and a surgeon who was very cool, and all of these nurses, then that was kind of it in terms of establishing. And all of that happened within about a month. It was a really busy month in September or October, getting all of those things put together. And in addition to getting everything set up medically, you were still doing home dialysis Mm -hmm. every Mm -hmm. day with one day a week off. And just so that 
I don't want people to get the image in their head that your life is just one medical event after another. <laughs> right. You know, you'd also just moved to New York City. Yeah. So what was that like? How do you think you want to talk to people about giving them an idea of what it's like and how you can experience a big city like that while also on dialysis? Uh, great question. You know, for me, a big part of those first few months really was the medical part and the moving in part. You know, you mentioned that I would spend all day building Ikea furniture and things. But there was also a thing for me coming from where I had come from, where I was not really expecting <laughs> to move to one of the largest cities in the world, um, such a heavily populated, really different area of the country. So I was sort of adjusting to that. And it took me a little longer than it took you. I've often told people who ask, especially people who grew up here and then have visited, say, Portland and go, oh, it's so nice and quiet there. And I go, yeah. And they're like, oh, well, what was it like moving to New York? And I, I will say, well, it took Laura like two hours to get used to it, to orient herself to the grid system and go, this is great. I want to live here forever. And it took me two or three months to kind of go, oh, I actually really like it here to kind of figure myself out. But I did. Part of what happened was I realized not just how to find my way around, but it was nice to kind of remind myself, this is a place where things that I had kind of imagined myself going or that had been in movies all exist. You know, a lot, a lot of movies in America are essentially set in New York or L.A., a lot of TV shows are set in New York or L.A. We lived about five blocks from the diner with the exterior of which is where um, the Seinfeld gang would go eat. And there were tons and tons of Seinfeld portraits and stuff inside. Um, I've often wondered how many other people's vacation photos were in the background of because we were oh, walking so to the subway and they were taking pictures of themselves. I don't think we ever walked past there when someone wasn't taking a picture. Again, time of day irrelevant, um, part of the year irrelevant, no matter what, someone was taking a picture. You know, not to say like, oh my goodness, I was such a Seinfeld fan, it was a pilgrimage. It wasn't, but I watched plenty of Seinfeld, and I, I remember walking past and going, wait, what? As we walked by, like, that looks really, fam oh my goodness. And of course, it's in guidebooks, and we had a guidebook. But I hadn't necessarily read or remembered that part. You're just surrounded by all kinds of places like that. There are amazing museums in the city. And we really made it a goal of ours on weekends especially to kind of get your head out of law school briefly and get me out of the house to visit museums, visit sites, just check things out that are in the city, to go to Times Square and think it's awesome before you start to hate it because of all those darn tourists everywhere, which we did, you know, and also to try to go to Broadway shows, which we totally couldn't afford, but we had student IDs, which meant that we could do rush tickets sometimes. So get up early in the morning and wait in line and hope that they had a couple of tickets they had ticket lotteries. We had a major awesome victory very early in our year there where uh, rent was getting close to closing and 
we there was a, a lottery where you just put your name in and then you say I want one or two tickets and then they just pull names out of a hat. And about an hour before the show. About an hour before the show. And Rent is the show that started that tradition. Now a bunch of places on Broadway do a similar thing. Yeah, and there's different shows do it different ways and some shows don't do it. But Rent was doing it and it was really about a week before it closed. And uh, because it was a week before it closed, they were having some of the famous people who had starred in in the show at the beginning come back to reprise their roles and things like that. And we won, and we went to see Rent. <laughs> well, I have to say, we did not win. True. It was right after we moved, and our friend Tara had moved to New York to go to the NYU drama school at the same time. Yes. And we had been spending all Saturday together hanging out. And we were going home, and we're walking by, and they were about to do the lottery. Okay, last call to put your names in. And Tara said, well, I, I, I got to go here. We'll all put our names in, and then if I win, I'll just give you my tickets. Right. And she did. And she did win. And it was the coolest thing <laughs> ever. So we sat in the front row at Rent while we sobbed as people were singing directly to us because we were right there in the front. And I got to look down in the pit and see that the guy was conducting the whole orchestra without a score on his desk, which is insane uh, <laughs> because it's not that... Not super complicated a score compared to some other ones, but it's a two and a half hour show and he just had it memorized and knew the whole thing. Yes, end of run, all those things, but I just could not imagine doing that without a net just on the off chance something went wrong. But he was totally cool with it and he was great. We saw dozens of shows yeah. day of for 20 bucks from either the front row or terrible balcony seats. Yeah, it was fantastic. There were plenty of lotteries that we entered Several times before we won, um, Wicked especially took a lot of entries, but eventually we got it. And we just did our best to explore the city, which was really cool. It wasn't without its challenges because sometimes I would be sick or just, you know, actually sick, like with a virus or something. Or sometimes I was just too tired to go out that day or that time or... Um, turned out I was throwing up that day or something. But for the most part, we went to a lot of shows. A lot of the museums in New York are suggested donation entry. And so we could say like, hi, we're poor and do that at the time. Or um, they had programs for people with student ID. Right. Really nice passport to the city. So we used that. And then also people came and visited. When you live in a cool place like New York, people are like, hey, what if we visited? So your parents visited, my parents visited, uh, a couple times friends came, or once or twice even friends of friends came and we had space, so uh, they stayed with us. And because that was what was going on, then we had excuses to go see other things. That's why we went to the Statue of Liberty the first time we did that, because that's a thing that people want to see when they visit New York, and we hadn't been yet. So I was on dialysis six days a week, and I did dialysis at home sometimes with extra people sitting in the room going, wow, that's a crazy machine, and me going, yeah, but here we are. And we just, we saw a lot of the city and did a lot of things. You know, again, not as active as we would have been if I'd been fully healthy, but in some ways more active because we were really trying to make the most of it sort of because I was on dialysis. 
it was it was a really fun time, especially that first year just going, all right, we're figuring out how to get here in New York. We're figuring out how to do this in New York. And there's all these cool opportunities. So let's do them. I had grown up as a musician, as a classical musician, idolizing the New York Philharmonic, especially under uh, Leonard Bernstein. Now, Leonard Bernstein died in like 1990 or thereabouts. So he obviously wasn't leading the orchestra anymore. But that's the orchestra that is here in this town. And I, I had never had the opportunity to hear them. It took us about a year, year and a half before we were finally able to go. But we did. This is also the home of Juilliard. They have student performances that are largely free. And Juilliard's a pretty good music school. And a lot of those graduates go on to play in major orchestras. They're quite good. And so... We went to some fun performances, and we went to also some other performances where they were doing stuff that was not really our bag, but it was played really well. We just got to do a lot of things that was really cool, and it also became sort of retroactively fun, where like we could realize or start to watch a new movie, or especially older movies or TV shows in syndication or something, and go, oh... I've been there. My favorite, I know that from a movie experience mm -hmm. that I ever had, and it still is my favorite. In the movie The Visitor, which is a small movie about a yes. guy who, um, he has he owns an apartment in New York and he goes there and it turns out there's somebody else who's been living there. It's a really good movie. But there's a scene where he's getting on a subway platform and there's a busker there yeah. playing a Chinese stringed instrument. I think it's called an erhu. And he's walking by, and we were watching this movie with my parents, and I said, I know that guy. He is in, you know, the whatever subway station. He is a real plays on the subway for money. They didn't hire an actor. Yeah, yeah. He often plays on the red line at the at 116th stop, sometimes Times Square. 14th Street sometimes. 14th Street, yeah. Um, he still does. Uh, and, and, yeah, that was definitely awesome. So, yeah, you know, we just... Explored the city a lot. Got to do so many cool things. Still do. But enough gushing about <laughs> New York City because this is a your health related podcast. Right. It's very serious. We got set up so that you could have supplies delivered, home dialysis supplies delivered to our apartment. Yeah. Um, and one of the things I think, as you may recall, was that we needed an apartment if it wasn't on the first floor that it had an elevator because lots of supplies. And so um, we had an elevator, which was very nice because there really were those days where I was exhausted or I thought I was okay. And then we went out and did something and that was all my energy for the day. And I hadn't realized that that was going to be it. But the dialysis company, you know, of course, we got set up with them right away. That was one of the prerequisites for moving to doing home dialysis at home as opposed to doing home dialysis in the center. And then they used, you know, local delivery people. There was a supply chain and it was a local delivery person, which of course makes sense because New York is its own unique special snowflake when it comes to things like that. And I had the same delivery person every month, which was different from Seattle. And I don't know why, but they subcontracted some shipping company, and this was the guy whose route I was on, I think. Um, 
I believe his name was Gus. That was not his real name. Right. But I believe it was. <laughs> um, that was what we referred to him as. He did introduce himself to me when he first started delivering my supplies. But I missed his name because it was in the middle of a, a rather lengthy complaint slash request for help that he was making where he couldn't figure out where the elevator was and it wasn't in a good spot and why did this have to be so hard and i was i was saying i don't know i'm on dialysis and the elevator's right by the stairs which is 20 feet straight ahead from the front door i can't move it you know <laughs> like i'm sorry i guess but that took a very long time he was bothered by that and his whole demeanor was um rather dour yeah you know when someone comes to your home and it took him about 20 minutes all told to get a month's worth of supplies into our apartment sometimes longer yeah yeah because he has to park the truck and go back and forth with his hand cart several times going up the elevator dropping things off and when somebody's coming into your home like that i often say hey do you want some water we've got juice in the fridge you kind of do those Hosting niceties. Yeah. And he wasn't into that. No. And he kind of just seemed ticked that he had to (laughs) deliver things to us. Yeah. He he would often scuff up the door or the hallway with the boxes and hand carts. We would have to like clean up after he left. Yeah. He generally seemed like his job and especially doing his job in our apartment was an imposition on him. And, you know, it wasn't necessarily an easy or fun job. Absolutely. And the other thing, too, is that often, if I was a more normal person or in the past or currently, if I had, say, FedEx coming in or UPS or some other delivery person and I knew they were going to be bringing some large thing, I would at least pay lip service. But more than lip service, I would actually offer, hey, can I help you carry this? Or just grab something and start moving it. But when I was on dialysis, that was not a thing I could do. I wasn't necessarily actually physically weak, but because the process was so actually draining, I did not have like the physical energy to help do that. I would have been far more in the way than anything else. And so I imagine that's a little bit annoying to have somebody stand around and watch you move boxes into their home. (laughs) Um, But as a result... We sometimes referred to him as Gus or Grumpy Gus because that was kind of how he was. And so if in future stories we refer to Gus, that's who we're talking about. It's I feel kind of bad about it because, you know, he's a human being. Um, Well, and then toward the very end of your home dialysis tenure, the route changed and you got a new guy. Yes, who was so friendly. Right. He came up the first time and he wanted to talk to us. And, <laughs> you know, I really like to get to know my patients because I've been doing this dialysis stuff now and it's so exciting. And mm-hmm. and we were really happy, like, oh, nice to meet you. Yeah, great. And then he did that thing like, oh, what was your last guy's name? And we got this awkward look like, oh, we don't remember. And, and we looked like monsters. Yes. Well, and then he saw the look on our face and he went, Oh, I know who it was. And then he said something about, well, yeah, the route changed because he got like too many points on his license and this and this happened. But like, don't worry, I'm here now. It's going to be way, way better. And we were like, oh, okay. Um, 
one last kind of funny thing about the delivery man formerly known as Gus. Yes. One of the things he did, because it took him about 20 minutes to go back and forth with these boxes, is that he would often use the boxes of supplies themselves to prop open the front door of the building or our door. Yeah. And then those would be the last boxes he brought in to deliver. Yeah. So one day, I am coming home from law school classes, and I see the front door of our building propped open with a dialysis box, which is very distinctive. Super distinctive. It has the company name and your prescription for dialysis printed on the side of it. Right. And a bright yellow label that says, this contains dialysate and this and this and that. Yeah, it had all this very specific distinctive markings. So I got there and it's propping up the door and, oh, Gus is here. He's delivering supplies, but the truck wasn't there. Mm -hmm. And so I thought, oh, he used this to prop open the door and then he forgot it. Right. So I picked up the box and walked up the stairs and put it in the apartment with the rest of the supplies. Yeah. And then later that night... We were putting you on dialysis, and I said something like, oh, Gus left one of the boxes downstairs, and you said, Gus didn't deliver supplies today. It's the middle of the month. Yeah. And I realized, oh, that that must be true. We don't need more supplies. And I went over to that box, and I opened it, and it was full of someone else's books. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And I realized that much like we had discovered... When we moved from Seattle to New York, hey, these dialysis boxes are perfect for moving. They sure are. We had been in New York when we finished with a box, flattening it down and taking it downstairs to the recycling room in the basement. Yeah. And some other nice people somewhere in the building had seen those boxes and thought, oh, those would be great for moving. Yes, they were right. And what I had done was walked up and stolen one of their boxes as they were moving and taking it back to our apartment. (laughs) Yes, so this is the part of the podcast where we admit that we are monsters twice over. I actually called the Columbia Housing Office to try to figure this out. You know, did anybody move from this building? (laughs) Right. Did they leave a forwarding address and there was no 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 answer? Yeah, so we we got some extra books. Uh, That was not our best moment. But yeah, you know, during this time period, I just... I started dialysis. I was largely living as a disabled person, but also, you know, working to experience as much of the city with you as I could. And I I think we did a pretty good job. We explored all of Central Park, which is a really large park and kind of impressive, again, when I think about how exhausted I often was from dialysis, that I was able to make some of those kind of hikes And yeah, saw and experienced just a ton of things in this city that are great so that when people come visit, we have a ton of recommendations like, well, try this, try that, or this is cool too. Did anything else interesting happen during that first year in New York? As a matter of fact, yes, there was. (laughs) That was the year that I proposed to you, which was kind of elaborate. At that point, we had been living together for several years. And we had talked about marriage a bunch of times, and we knew we wanted to get married. And in fact, I had had to ask you, please let me be the one who makes the actual official proposal. Um, As much as I liked, and definitely you liked, the idea of sort of flipping tradition on its head and fighting the patriarchy in all of those ways, it was something that I had like imagined and dreamed about with my wedding scrapbook. (laughs) That's not true. But I really had uh, imagined and dreamed about that in some way for 
a really long time. And so I wanted to be able to realize that uh, in my life. And so you were very kind and allowed me to do that. And for a number of years, I had been writing music, often for students, um, but, you know, sometimes just for fun. I hadn't written anything for you. And you had been kind of excited about the idea of some kind of real or sort of Irishy, dancey kind of thing. And so that was the year that I started planning to do that. We knew that you were going to be doing something that summer, and probably you were looking at doing some kind of legal internship overseas. And so just from a practical standpoint, if we were married, that might make certain things a little bit easier. That was like 200th down on the list, but it did sort of factor into timing. And, you know, <laughs> I was very in love with you, as I still am, and wanted to marry you. So I started writing this reel sometime, I want to say, in November-ish, uh, which was difficult because while you were out of the house a lot, I wasn't always in great shape to be doing an intellectual creative project, specifically at those times. But I slowly worked on putting this together, version after version, and adding things and taking things away. So I was working on it in secret for this a long time. And I had planned that I was going to do it in February. I don't remember exactly why February, but I had landed on this idea where the 16th of every month, we had sort of sometimes more seriously, sometimes more jokingly considered our month anniversary because we started dating officially on the 16th of June. And so in February, the 14th is Valentine's Day, but that's super cheesy. And the 16th is our month anniversary, and so I thought, well, I'll split the difference, and I'll do it on the 15th, and that will be Sandwich Day, because it's sandwiched in between these two things. And this was the incredible idea that I had come up with in my head. Uh, so I had written this piece of music, and I managed through what I th still think is barely operable subterfuge the night before to get the mp3 of this reel onto your iPhone. So then the next day I was like, hey, let's go walk in Central Park. And you were sort of stunned because especially as a dialysis patient, I wasn't planning anything. And you're like, yeah, of course, why not? If Ari's gonna plan something, let's go. So we went to your favorite place in Central Park and uh, we sat on a bench and I said, hey, can I see your phone? And I had a pair of your headphones in my jacket. I had all this stuff stuffed in my jacket, and I thought for sure you were going to see that I looked about 40 pounds heavier than I actually am. But either you didn't or you pretended you didn't, because, which was very nice. And so we listened to this thing I had written for you, and, um, and then I asked you to marry me, and I gave you the ring. There had been all kinds of shenanigans trying to get the ring without you knowing about it, but I had managed to do that too. And it totally worked and it came off that was a you know it was a big deal it was really fun to pull something like that off and get it to work and write the music for you and see you get to hear it and and all of those things it was also it was also kind of funny because you know we were talking about establishing care with doctors I had to establish care with an audiologist because I wear hearing aids of course and over the course of that year at a certain point she noticed wait a minute, 
because I had seen her in like January and I had mentioned something, my girlfriend, blah, blah, blah. And then I saw her again in March and I said something, oh yeah, my fiance, blah, blah, blah. And she went, wait, what? Oh, congratulations. Like she had logged that and paid attention and noticed that change. And then I saw her like in July or something and said something, my wife, blah, blah, blah. And she went, oh, wow, this moved very fast. And I was like, well, yeah, it did. <laughs> so that was obviously a big deal that we uh, set that up and started planning a small wedding. And I think instead of our usual outro music, I will play the piece you wrote for me. Oh, okay. For the audience, assuming that this episode doesn't run too long. <laughs> okay. We're going to move to some listener questions. Mm-hmm. I got kind of an array of questions from Sean. Okay. So the questions go, when your kidney failed and you were on dialysis before yeah. getting another transplant, did that mean that you could stay off the immunosuppressant drugs? If yes, was there any benefit to that or was your immune system totally shot by then anyway? <laughs> if your immune system is totally shot because of immunosuppressant drugs, why do you need to keep taking them? Some aspects of this are maybe more medical than I feel qualified to answer. But I can tell you just from my experience, um, when the transplant fails, they say, hey, stop taking these medications. They have a bunch of side effects, major and minor, and the major effect of them is unnecessary. You don't need to suppress your immune system. So yeah, I stopped taking all of those medications every time a transplant fully failed and I started back on dialysis. There is one exception that after my second transplant failed, one of my doctors wanted to keep me on, I think, prednisone and maybe one of the other meds for a while. And I think that was because he assumed that I was going to have another transplant right away, which wasn't true. And I never really understood the logic of that. And when I switched doctors, when we moved to Seattle, he immediately said, this is silly. You don't need to do that. And so I didn't. To my knowledge, there are not lasting immune system side effects from long-term immunosuppressant therapy. Right. To my understanding, it's more like birth control. Yeah. It suppresses your immune system when you're on it, and then you get off and that comes back. Right. It might take a little while, but yeah, it does. And um, that's why you have to take them, you know, for the rest of the life of the kidney is what they always say. So that's that's how that works. You take them while you have a transplant, and if that ends, then you don't take them anymore, and that's kind of it. Moving right into my last question of the episode. Okay. How are you feeling this week? I've been doing a little bit better. Uh, my work week got incredibly intensely busy, so while I started to feel a little bit better, I also had more to do, so I kind of felt the same amount of tired in a certain way. Um, I'm still a little stuffed up. That's going to be true probably for a week or two or three, or it might be unending through March, which is sort of a thing that happens. I have a series of colds and it's hard to tell where one ends and one begins, which isn't great, but is almost always pretty manageable. And right now it's pretty manageable. So I'm at less than a hundred percent, but I'm kind of always less than a hundred percent. I'm doing okay. And that's this week's episode. The KidneyCast is available on iTunes or Stitcher. Um, please, if you listen via either of those platforms, drop us a review. We really appreciate it, and it does actually help other people find the podcast because yeah. it moves us up in iTunes listings and things like that. So 
If you like the podcast and you want to help us out, we really do appreciate getting reviews. Yeah, toss us some stars. <laughs> uh, the podcast is also available with show notes on my website, lauramorris.com, L-A-R-R-A-M-O-R-R-I-S.com. All the episodes are there with show notes. This week, I will link Ari's composition. And if you want to find us on social media, facebook.com slash kidneycast or Twitter at kidneycast. And we're really happy if you want to email us some questions or comments. Yeah. Kidneycast at gmail.com. Thank you so much for talking to me today, Ari. Yeah, thanks. And thank you to everybody for listening.